2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may
0: lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, Santa Claus is coming to town. That's right. This is an episode about Santa Claus. It's also an episode about gods and our ideas about gods, our god concepts, and what that that all means. And we are going to get into the question of whether... Santa is a god or not. Uh, I do want to just have a couple of quick uh, reminders here as we dive into this one. First of all, uh, yes, this episode has to do with Santa, but if you are uh, tempted to listen to it outside of the holiday season, no worries, because there's going to be a lot of talk that does not directly apply to Santa Claus. Sure. This is an episode about the cognitive science of religion. And secondly, we will be discussing the magic of Santa Claus in this episode. So uh, just keep that in mind, parents, if you're listening with your children children Sure.
0: All right. So, most of us would not say that Santa Claus is a god, right? I mean, we, we don't necessarily—maybe we're not always able to define god in a dictionary definition kind mm-hmm. of way. But you have an intuitive sense of how this word is used. And for some reason, Santa Claus doesn't usually fit into that definition, right? That intuitive definition. Right.
1: Even if you are, let's say— a, a a child who is a Santa fundamentalist uh-huh. uh, who believes in you know very literally in Santa Claus. Uh, even then, I don't think they would necessarily uh, confuse the the idea of Santa Claus with the idea of say the Judeo-Christian deity. Sure, uh, but on the same hand, and on the same hand, as, as we're going to discuss in this episode, there are a lot of similarities. So first of all. Uh, I want to just talk a little bit about Santa Claus, this magical being that factors so heavily into Western holiday traditions, as well as traditions around the world that have been influenced by the notion of uh, the great jolly old elf. Mm-hmm. The exact mythology is going to vary, of course, but, but here are just some of the often highlighted aspects of the mythos. Hit me. Okay. First of all, Santa is at at the very least extremely long-lived, if not undying, immortal, or eternal. I mean, he's been doing his thing for a long time. That's right. Uh, secondly, uh, Santa is, I guess you would say, Sophic or all-knowing. Uh, he knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Uh, I'm not sure he's supposed to know your inner thoughts, but he is privy to an awful lot. I think a lot of conceptions of
0: Santa would even give him like inner psychic access. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean if if Santa can – well, Santa can at least see what you're doing when other people aren't around to see what you're doing. He sees what you're doing in private, right? Yes. That that seems like that's verging on – I mean it's got to be like supernatural there.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's It's not not like
0: he's just getting reports about your behavior.
1: Right. He definitely has supernatural abilities. It just – it comes down to whether he – can see inside your brain or not, if he can see your thoughts uh, at all, if he can anticipate your actions based on that information. Also, uh, he receives mail from all over the world, often through magical means or at least magical variations of the the postal system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, that includes things like letters can find him uh, no matter where you mail them. You can mail them at the zoo. You can mail them at home. You can mail them through the chimney. Things like that.
0: You know, another thing that's very common about gods is they tend to live in inaccessible places. If not Mm -hmm. in a, like, extra-dimensional completely, fundamentally inaccessible place, even when they live on earth, they tend to be at the top of a mountain or at the bottom of the ocean or something like yeah,
1: that. Yeah, I think the, the mountaintop god is, a, is an excellent example because in the modern sense, what is the top of the world mountain? It is uh, the North Pole. Of course. Which is uh, which is where Santa Claus is said to reside. And it is an insanely hostile environment. Um, <laughs> He's fighting off polar bears. yeah, yeah. And, and he seems to reside there without any outside support aside from the milk and cookies that he collects every year. Mm-hmm. And of course, the big ones, Santa can travel around the entire world world and visit every home in a single evening every year. I remember thinking about this as a
0: child and uh, thinking like, well, I don't know. That sounds really difficult, but it's
1: probably not impossible. (laughs) Right. It it seemed within the the stretching of plausibility to me. Right. Like the magic makes sense at first and then you start thinking about the magic and you're like, wow, this is some potent magic. Uh Uh-huh. And then along the way, you know, you, you introduce some science fiction concepts and you introduce some uh, some elaborate uh, visions of the nature of time and uh, you can create some versions of it that makes a little bit more sense perhaps. But at the very least, Santa has amazing abilities to, to travel in ways that a mortal human cannot. Of course. And there's, there's much more than that that we might add based uh, not only on beliefs but on films as well that feature Santa Claus. So he has been uh, spotted in the presence of Inhuman Beastmen, as we discussed in our Krampus episode. Okay. Sometimes appears in the guise of Tim Allen and Goldberg. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Also, Hulk Hogan. Didn't Hulk Hogan play a Santa Claus? Oh, Oh, I don't don't remember that. Goldberg, definitely, in the movie Santa Slay, which Ah. is,
0: you know, you can probably guess what it's about.
1: (laughs) Uh, Also, Santa can communicate with magical deer that also fly and enable him to fly. He can control robots uh, as he has the power over all toys and machines that might be argued to be toys. Uh, This is, of course, from Santa Claus versus the Martians. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, in that, Santa Claus is also drawn into an interplanetary dispute. Santa associates with known wizards such as Merlin— Uh, If you watch the old uh, Mexican Santa Claus film, uh, we, of course, see him hanging out with Merlin and then dealing uh, with demons, uh, engaging in direct conflict with at least demons who serve the Christian devil, if not the Christian devil himself.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. He straight up fights demons in Mm -hmm. the movie. Oh, that devil. It's like uh, it's like Gandalf versus the Balrog. It's Santa versus whatever that demon's name
1: is. Yeah. So, I mean, he he gets into some serious uh, theological territory in that film. Uh-huh. Uh, he also may or may not play the saxophone when visiting Asian countries, uh, which isn't as remarkable, I guess. But it's, a, it's an additional wrinkle in the, the the myth of Santa. Now, we are obviously not the first people
0: to raise these parallels between the Santa Claus that brings magical delight to children all over the place and, uh, and you know, basically gods that are found throughout history all over the world. In fact, I would say it's almost like a, a cliched joke at this point to kind of uh, – a uh, uh, point out that Santa Claus and God are in some sense interchangeable uh, yes. to to many children.
1: Yeah, my favorite example of this uh, goes back to the year 2000, and uh, one of uh, you know our shared favorite shows, The Simpsons. There's the episode where Bart uh, goes in uh, to his bedroom mm-hmm. and he kneels by his bed, and then he begins to pray, and he says, "Quote, dear Santa, if you bring me lots of good stuff, I promise not to do anything bad between now and when I wake up. Amen." <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha! It's the best kind of Simpson's joke because there's a joke in what he
0: says mm-hmm. between now and when I wake up, but actually, the even funnier part is the very concept of him saying it that he's praying to Santa in the first place
1: yeah and I, I one of the things I always loved about it is is that it takes me a second to catch it, yeah, you know, because it's not instantly clear that it's something out of the ordinary. I think it I vaguely remember almost doing this at one point as a child, even uh sort of at least subconsciously getting the idea confused. Uh, You know, praying to Santa is only a few degrees to the left of sending a letter to an entity that can observe your every move. And it's not that different from uh, the idea of praying to this uh, divine entity that you're told about, say, at Sunday school.
0: Yeah. And so for the rest of the episode today, we're going to be focusing on a paper that actually asks the question of, well... In the terms of cognitive science of religion, does Santa Claus actually qualify as a god or not? <laughs> does he match the other things that would be called a god within this uh, this sort of like
1: scientific academic framework? In particular, we're going to be looking at an article by experimental psychologist Justin Barrett, published in the Journal of Cognition and Culture back in 2008. And, and Barrett is an interesting uh, character. He, uh, he wrote a book titled, Why Would Anyone Believe in God? And he himself is a Christian, but he also sees God as a byproduct of our mental architecture. And he he, he sees this in a way where these two concepts uh, have room to coexist.
0: Yeah, uh, he seems like an interesting figure to me. Like having read a bit about him, I think he's in the spirit of those who would believe that uh, like the existence of God is not in conflict with naturalistic explanations for religion.
1: Yeah, uh, like for instance, when he was asked about about this Potential conflict uh, in in a 2007 New York Times article titled Darwin's God, uh, he said the following, quote, Christian theology teaches that people were crafted by God to be in a loving relationship with him and other people. Why wouldn't God then design us in such a way as to find belief in divinity quite natural? Suppose science produces a convincing account for why I think my wife loves me. Should I then stop believing that she does? Uh, which I thought was a nice answer to that question.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Like the, you can you can put together all kinds of uh, uh, coherent scientific explanations for what the feeling of love is. Mm-hmm. Why this is an emotion that's generated by the primate brain. What kind of relationship it has to, you know, the evolutionary pressures that created our bodies and our brains. But at the same time, it doesn't make the love not real. And so applying that to religion, you could say, okay, well, here's a, a list of reasons we think that like evolution, natural selection could have shaped our brains to be geared toward religion. Uh, so you have totally mechanistic natural type explanations for where religion comes from. And yet you could still, under this theory, potentially believe your religion to be true or multiple religions to be true.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and And I think that – that, uh, that goes along with the way we tend to approach religious concepts on this show, I think, that, uh, that we can certainly explain where they come from. They can, we can discuss, uh, you know, the, how they evolve over time and the different influences uh, wound up in them. But at the same time, we can respect that, that yes, this, this story, this myth, this idea, this concept can still be very weighty and very important uh, to the individuals that value it.
0: Well yeah and and that also though gets into another layer of complexity which is what it actually means to quote believe in a religion like can yeah. you believe in a religion does that necessarily mean that you accept say its story of the creation of the world as literally true right. or that it suggests or that it uh that its propositions about metaphysics are literally physically real
1: Yeah absolutely and and, and just to to drive home a fact here again parental warning Santa Claus is not real in the sense that, <laughs> that Santa Claus does not physically exist in the world. He is not actually doing these, these, uh, these great uh, deeds that we attribute to him. Uh, but on the other hand, he is a, an, obviously an important cultural idea. And for my own part, like you know, I try and, and drive home the importance of mythology and belief. Alongside uh, the importance of, um, you know, of, 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 of you know, fundamental reality, I guess, a mm. scientific reality, uh, when talking about these things with with my own son. Uh, you know currently he's really invested in the idea of santa but i am hopefully laying the groundwork that when santa falls from the uh, the lofty realm of um, of presumed magical reality he's not going to plummet into the um, hellish depths of lies and inaccuracies he will instead fall into this realm of mythological uh, um, and this this realm of um, of magical concepts uh, that are valued by human culture if that makes sense
0: well yeah Santa Claus is not physically real but the magic of Santa Claus is absolutely real like it's one of the most powerful mind states that I can recall from my entire life is is the anticipation magic of the Christmas season when I was young
1: yeah yeah absolutely and and I also remember sort of going through the um, the, the struggle of then uh, realizing okay Santa Claus is not objectively real but then, gradually, then growing to, to realize that okay, the idea of Santa Claus can still be very important and can still be very real in that sense. In the way, the same way that you know one grows to learn that that uh, fictional characters and uh, and uh, and other stories uh, can be extremely important to us in a way that where they're sometimes even more important than uh, than flesh and blood individuals and uh, in, in very real uh, events in the world. Uh, but anyway, I want to get back to uh, Barrett's work. Again, he's he's working in the realm of, of cognitive science of religion, exploring in his words, quote, why religious thoughts and actions only occupy a small area in the vast landscape of possible belief systems.
0: And that's actually, I think, a fascinating question, right? Like religious beliefs could in theory be anything. Mm-hmm. Anything could be a religious belief. Uh, example, my friend Julian – believes that a breakfast crunch wrap supreme that he got from taco bell in 2017 is the creator of the universe Mm -hmm. and only by its zesty salvation can he be saved from annihilation why is it obvious this is a joke (laughs) seriously like how come as soon as i said that you knew that i was kidding You don't need to go like look that up on Google and see if there really is a sincere crunchwrap supreme cult. You just immediately know that people don't believe that sort of thing as a sincere religion. And yet people believe in all kinds of strange things, uh, things that would of course seem strange to those who don't share their religious beliefs. So why is it that religious beliefs can and do involve all kinds of strange things and narratives and propositions? And yet there's actually a pretty constrained set of things, even within that fantastical landscape, that would truly seem acceptable as a god or a religious narrative. Like for some reason, thumbs up to the immortal all-powerful person who reads your thoughts as god, but thumbs down to the fast food item as creator god, right? So like re- religious beliefs are, are not usually constrained by things like the normal functioning of physics or biology, but they are clearly constrained by something. If they weren't constrained by something, it wouldn't be obvious that the wrap supreme god was a joke.
1: The <laughs> cat yeah, yeah. I think it is It is fascinating that, yes, okay, world religion involves so many wonderful concepts and so many things that when you're first introduced to them, they seem strange and new and, and and, and, and uh, you know, perplexing at times. And and we, we celebrate that on, on this show. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, there's not a tremendous amount of difference between, uh, you know, the details of this religion and the next religion. Well, yeah, there is this funny tension where
0: in, in one sense, there's incredible diversity and difference. But in, on the other hand, that's all constrained within some kind of lane that mm-hmm. we sort of have a sense for you you might not be able to define exactly what all the parameters are though uh barrett's going to try to do that in a minute but you you've got a sense that like for some reason the crunch wrap doesn't work that's just not a thing people would believe in as god you just know it automatically so what do people's actual beliefs in gods seem to have in common Barrett argues that the cognitive science of religion has actually been pretty successful in identifying the most common features of human religious beliefs, including what kinds of concepts people most often find intuitive as gods. Uh, And I guess we'll get into those in just a minute. But first, uh, we should talk about some of his like – basic criteria for for what even constitutes the category
1: right so the the first one and this is a big one is that multiple individuals must share a given idea for it to be a genuine culture or religious concept and this is this is kind of a no-brainer but it's important to note Uh, he gives it this example if one person believes their lamp can grant wishes and control the weather that's not a god that's just one person who has a crazy idea about their lamp But if a bunch of people share this idea about a given lamp, it might just be a God concept. Sure. Uh, And I agree that religion
0: has a very strong and possibly necessary social component. And yet I do think there are some interesting counterexamples uh, that we might want to think about, like hermetic mystics who live in isolation. They cut themselves off from the world to develop private, personal, almost secretive relationships with and understandings of God or, or of the gods. And yet I think Barrett is still correct because we don't, usually grant these idiosyncratic private mystical practices the status of a religion unless they're supported by a wider structure of belief shared by larger numbers of people. Like the mystical traditions often tend to be a kind of monastic offshoot or branch of larger religions with regular social adherence.
1: Right, right. So, yes, while we may celebrate the – uh, the ideas of say someone like a William Blake mm-hmm. you know uh, who who you know certainly had his his own sort of spin on what uh, on on what god was and and what the you know the the, the cosmology of uh, of of the universe happened to be but we're we're probably not going to buy into every detail of it right. we're willing to sort of stand a, a foot back and say like okay he he has his own take on this mm-hmm. uh, but i'm i'm still keeping to the canon. You know, this is the extended universe, Star Wars, and I'm more of a, uh, you know, the Star Wars films. Right,
0: and and we accept Blake's
1: idiosyncratic ideas as religious because
0: I think they grow out of a larger existing religion. You know, right. they're, they're like, they're this kind of extended universe, uh, the expanded universe of Christianity.
1: I, I uh, guess one can also say that it helps in these cases if other people do not start flocking to your um, uh, your extended universe concept of religion because then you stand the risk of being a heresy.
0: Yeah, and, and, or creating and get, a, a new different religion. Right. Yeah, uh, and that's another thought entirely. It seems to me also that Only widely distributed beliefs are likely to have stable contents because one member of the religion tends to mediate any potential like deviation from the orthodoxy by another member of the religion. But – Private religious beliefs, they seem to be radically unstable. You know, they're liable to change constantly.
1: It's like asking how many editors have access to a given uh, wiki page. Yeah. You know, and if it's a a Wikipedia page and it's one that is – that gets a lot of uh, traffic and has a lot of eyes on it. You know, by and large, you can assume that the information there is probably going to be on the level or if it's or if anything crazy is added, it's going to be taken out pretty quickly mm. uh you know the, the The inquisition is going to move in on those heretics now, if it is a an off brand wiki <laughs> and it has like two editors or one editor uh-huh. uh, then it's up for grabs right right.
0: Yeah, maybe one day somebody gets a wild hair, they're like I'm going to go in and make some major changes. Those changes they probably stick, right? Nobody comes in to change it back. I mean there's there's no controlling
1: influence. Right. And then if it does change, you know, when it does change over time, I think the idea of a you know, again, a high-profile Wiki, Wikipedia page or a, a widely accepted god. Like the changes are going to occur gradually and they're going to emerge from the culture at large.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. Having more adherence makes a, an orthodoxy more generally stable. Though, of course, they do still change over time. Oh, yes. It's mm-hmm. just uh, – there's just r- less potential for sudden radical change, I think.
1: Right. Unless certain individuals have a tremendous amount of power yeah. over it. And then in that case, you know, you have like the ancient Egyptian model where suddenly a ruler decides, actually, it's just the sun disk. And that's what we're doing now.
0: Exactly. But that was one guy and it didn't stick. Right, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I,
0: I think ultimately I agree with Barrett that if we're we're going with normal usage, what people usually mean when they talk about a religious belief. It needs to be a distributed belief that's right. held by a, a decent number of people. I'm not sure exactly what the number is. But like private beliefs of a single person or a handful of people, I probably don't count as religions yet.
1: All right, number two. Religious concepts and God concepts can spread due to, quote, features of human minds that transcend cultural environmental variations, unquote. And I'm assuming that something like the fear of death and the desire to avoid pain might be such features, uh, uh, as an example.
0: Yeah, you're, you're correct about that. I mean, what he means is just that it's obvious that influences on religion can be cultural or social, right? They can come from, you know, just contingent facts about history and what else is going on in the culture and politics and all that. But there, there can be these—what he's arguing is that there are these internal factors as mm-hmm. well, and this is what the cognitive science of religion is about. It's about brains, right? There are some religious beliefs that will be better adapted to survive in the environment of the human primate brain than other beliefs will be regardless of cultural factors like uh, some beliefs just fit like a puzzle piece with our instincts emotional tendencies cognitive capacities and others don't fit quite so well Uh, I was trying to think of a few simple obvious examples here's a Clarkian kind of one you probably wouldn't find a popular religious belief where you had to remember a name for God that was 18 million syllables (laughs) long right Right. Uh, because the cognitive constraints of memory put limits on what types of God beliefs there are. You, you You wouldn't expect a concept of God to be successful if it just couldn't be remembered. Here's another one. Due to uh, natural features of, of emotion and motivation in human brains, you wouldn't expect to find beliefs in a God that you are required to love and obey and who rewards you for your love and obedience with eternal torture in the hell of coconut crabs. Right. You know that this just goes counter natural instincts about motivation. Your your brain doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah, it has to be offering you something that 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 fits the the mold for your 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 biological life and the mind that uh, governs your behavior in that biological life.
0: Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So I think that that's a pretty standard thing of cognitive science of religion. There are of course going to be extremely powerful cultural factors determining what kind of religious beliefs proliferate, but there are also some probably biological neuroscientific factors
1: that contribute as well. And speaking of biology, the third uh, uh, requirement that Barrett uh, lays out is that some features of the human mind are products of human biology as it interacts with the natural world, apart from cultural environmental variations. So maybe the the pain example from above fits here, but there may be better examples. Oh, sure. Yeah. I
0: think the pain thing works great. I mean, this is just saying like our brains are shaped by our evolution. Mm -hmm. Of course they are. Uh, And they're filled with contents from culture, but they still have some innate kind of tendencies that are just like part of your body. That's just how brains usually work. One of them is that we're motivated to seek pleasure and avoid pain. You know, it's like it's
1: really hard to get around that standard way that brains work. All right, so a, a big concept in gods, of course, is that a god doesn't just need to exist within, a, within, a, you know, within the minds of a particular set of people. The god needs to be able to travel. It needs to be accepted by new people uh, you know, across space and time.
0: Yeah, it needs memetic survival advantages. It needs to be able to spread and and take root
1: in new environments. So we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to get into uh, uh, Barrett's ideas regarding the five features that a god must have to successfully travel. And uh, this according to uh, the cognitive science of religion. And then we'll eventually get into questions regarding Santa Claus himself. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: All right, we're discussing how uh, this paper about whether or not Santa Claus actually counts as a god as, as usually defined by the criteria of the cognitive science of religion. And this psychologist, Justin Barrett, uh, has in this article, he, he lays out five normal criteria that gods really have to have to be successful and be thought of as gods.
1: All right. This first one uh, is going to sound familiar, and that is that gods must be counterintuitive, or more specifically, they have to be minimally counterintuitive. And if this sounds familiar, it's because we did a whole episode on it.
0: Totally. It originally aired in August 2018. It was called The Gods Must Be Counterintuitive. Uh, And we talked about myths and folktales, including religious characters and narratives, with an eye toward the question of what makes one successful and another unsuccessful. In secular narratives— Like, why does everybody know the story of Cinderella, but there is no Walt Disney's The Donkey Cabbages? (laughs) Uh, We talked about The Donkey Cabbages in this episode. It's a fairy tale that... It just doesn't seem to work as well as Cinderella because it's just crammed with counterintuitive stuff on the other hand, you could think of tons of mundane boring stories that don't uh, proliferate as well as Cinderella but in a in a religious context or especially an ancient religious context, why does one religion spread far and wide and another one just never take off uh, again we should acknowledge there are going to be hugely important other, you know, non-brain-based factors influencing this, like political and social contingencies. You know, the religion of a powerful, successful empire tends to spread, right? Right. So there's no sense ignoring those factors. Those are obviously very important. But are there factors just in the human animal, in the brain as well? And cognitive science of religion tends to think, yeah, there are probably a few factors in our brains, about our brains that make some religions more successful than others— And in this episode from 2018, we discussed a line of research positing that a major factor in the success of a narrative or a religion, at least in the pre-modern context, was mnemonic resilience. That means how easily a story is remembered, how easily a story survives in the memory. Uh, Most religion for most of history, of course, has been spread not by holy texts or anything, but by word of mouth, right? You've got to spread a religion by telling people about it because most people in history have been illiterate. And so what kinds of things are easier to remember when when you're trying to spread them around the world? Well, psychologists had already found evidence that people remember lists of items better when that list contains one or two strange items that don't seem to fit with the other items on the list.
1: Oh, yes. Isn't
0: that interesting?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like if you're at, at a grocery store and you're you're spying on what the person in front of you is buying, uh-huh. uh, you're going to remember it if there's something that is completely out of keeping with the rest of it, that, that doesn't assemble in your head into uh, like a, a an easily definable meal.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Like it would seem to suggest uh, by this principle that... If you're looking at what somebody has in their cart, you'd remember every item they have in their cart better if it's like mostly normal groceries with a couple of really weird things in there.
1: Yeah, like if someone were buying uh, pie crust, whipped cream, frozen strawberries, you think, oh, they're making strawberry pie, and then you'd forget about it. But if they're buying whipped cream, pie crust... Um, and then something else like— A whole fish. A whole fish, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You'd be like, oh, my God, they're making a fish pie uh-huh. with whipped cream on top and a graham cracker crust. That is crazy. And then you'd be telling everyone you knew about it.
0: Yeah, so at least as far as lists go, lists of things, it seems that it's easier to remember something that's like mostly normal with a couple of weird elements than it is to remember something that's totally bonkers or totally mundane. Um, and so one of the papers we looked at uh, in this episode also applied this principle to the intuitiveness of elements in a story like a, like a folktale or a religious narrative. This was by uh, Noran Zion, Atran Faulkner and Schaller in Cognitive Science in 2006 called Memory and Mystery, the Cultural Selection of Minimally Counterintuitive Narratives. Uh, And so basically the short story is this paper found some evidence to support the hypothesis that the kinds of stories people remember best – are minimally counterintuitive narratives, not stories that are straightforward and mundane, not stories that are crammed with weird outlandish stuff, but stories in the middle, sort of toward one end, like stories that are mostly straightforward with a small number of strange or fantastical counterintuitive elements.
1: So, for instance, a humanoid elephant is a great concept. An old man who lives in the sky is a great concept, and these concepts travel uh, reasonably well.
0: Yes, Uh, And just as a tie-in to this older episode, I I remember one thing we talked about in there. uh, We talked about a number of papers that Justin Barrett was a co-author of. Mm -hmm. You know, he does a lot in the cognitive science of religion, uh, including one that I I still remember I thought was very interesting. It was about anthropomorphization in the psychology of religion. And this paper was published in the journal Cognitive Psychology in 1996 – And essentially, it was by Barrett and Kyle, and it found that people, quote, spontaneously anthropomorphize God in their reasoning, even if doing so contradicts their stated theological beliefs. So, like, when they don't remember to avoid doing so, if you're not there reminding mm-hmm. them what their previously stated theological beliefs are, people tend to start thinking of God as like a normal human agent with just like big supernatural powers, but basically with a, a human brain.
1: Yeah, like I, I can definitely relate to this because I, I tend to think when I when I, you know, think about concepts of a, of a monotheistic uh, deity, I think of, uh, you know, something more. Um, uh, surreal or psychedelic. I think of uh, you know like a some sort of uh, like triangular non physical entity, mm-hmm. or I think of you know something that is uh, you know uh, something where where the you know the god is singular, but also all these other gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I, I throw a lot of concepts at it, but uh, like
0: I'm, like the ground of being, you know that yeah, kind of thing, yeah, yeah. stuff
1: like that. But if I'm not thinking too hard about it, if I'm, say, just like listening to somebody at church talk or I'm reflecting on some, uh, you know, just on the nature of God, I'll fall back into the sky daddy uh, mode where it's like an old bearded man in the sky uh-huh. uh, reaching out his finger to touch the living, uh-huh. uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll have to be like, well, wait, no, 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 that's not what I've been filling my head with. Uh, it's a, you know, space triangle, etc.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so Barrett and Kyle find that this tendency is very common. They say, you know, even if you think of God as like the ground of being, being or the force or even you know to get into a specific religion like in in specific monotheisms you might find people with very carefully calibrated theologians type points of view you know where they 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 actually have meticulously formed beliefs about like what god can and can't know and what how the mind of god works and all that kind of stuff uh, but like if you just kind of get them thinking without reminding them that that's what their stated beliefs are, they just sort of start thinking about God like a person with a human brain.
1: Yeah, and this can also be like super irritating if you're you're trying to cultivate an idea of the Almighty as being, say, gender neutral or even being feminine as opposed to masculine. Mm-hmm. And then when you're not thinking about it, you fall right back into to it being a, you know, traditional uh, uh, masculine, uh, uh, you know, patriarchal being.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess there's that tendency too, Probably pushing on like specific personality attributes and mm-hmm. stuff, and not just like the anthropomorphization. The, though they do say the authors here say that uh, constantly reminding people about their own stated theological beliefs can help attenuate the anthropomorphization impulse. Right? You know, if you you're like, hey, remember what you said? You said you believe God was like this. Like that'll <laughs> that'll obviously will help some cut down on it. But they suggest here that this may indicate a strong tendency to anthropomorphize all agents no matter what kind of being they are. Dogs become humans. Computers become humans. The world spirit becomes a human. Everything that appears to have any kind of independent action or is believed to have any kind of independent action basically just becomes a human.
1: Well, that's that's the theory of mind, right? Like it's there so we can understand primarily what our fellow humans are doing. But then it, it can act you know it can actually be very helpful in trying to figure out what non human animals are, uh, are are wanting to do. I was reading a little bit about this uh, in terms of veterinary science and how oh, yeah? you know like there's the older tradition of saying like don't or, or no, it goes beyond veterinary science and science in general, just the study of animals right. and say like there's the idea of like you know don't think of it as as a person don't anthrop- anthropomorphize it at all mm. don't. Th- you know, don't think about its feelings, and then there are some who say, "Well, actually, you know, we should we should use theory of mind to a, sa- a certain degree, to a safe degree, uh, to." figure out what is going on in the, the minds of, of, of an animal. But then if you're anthropomorphizing everything, if you are, uh, in the words of a creative writing teacher I, I once had, if you anthropomorphize like a mad god, mm-hmm. uh, then that's where we get into problems. Or, and also, that's where we end up creating some of the more, uh, you know, inspired concepts in human culture as well. Yeah, totally.
0: Uh, I guess, so, to bring it back, yes, as Barrett says, according to the cognitive science of religion, it seems true that gods must be in some way counterintuitive ideally minimally counterintuitive uh you know having some unusual aspects like maybe say being invisible and all powerful but they don't have to be all powerful there are also minor gods that still qualify as gods right, right. In- invisible and having some kind of non-normal powers or attributes
1: Right. I mean, basically, I I like to play the the game of, like, just keep adding counterintuitive aspects to a particular deity Mm -hmm. and decide at which point it's silly and no longer intimidating. Right. Like a... Like a, a, a strange tall man comes out of the shadows and gives me commandments. Okay, that's great. All right. Let's add that he has the, the head of a dog. Okay, even better. He, uh, uh-huh. you know, hybrids are a huge part of religious concept. Now he's got crab claws. Then he has crab claws, <laughs> right. Uh, and then, okay, it's, one's a crab claw and one is a hand puppet uh-huh. uh, and so forth. Like every time you add something else to it, it becomes a little bit more ridiculous and a little harder to to, to take. Uh, and uh, that that seems to be part of the whole you know, uh, minimally counterintuitive.
0: Yes. Uh, but if, they've got to at least be counterintuitive because if you say like, this is my buddy Jeff. He's God. He, <laughs> he doesn't have anything unusual about him. Like there are no – he doesn't have any powers. He's not invisible. He can't fly. He's not omniscient, omnipotent. D- nothing like that. He's just Jeff. That's not – nobody thinks that's a god.
1: Now, Jeff would probably at least – Pass the next one. This is number two on Barrett's list. Gods must be intentional agents. Barrett uses the example of two minimally counterintuitive concepts, an invisible potato versus a talking potato.
0: Okay, both minimally counterintuitive, but one works better as a god than another.
1: Yeah, only the latter is viable candidate for godhood because it implies agency. A god must have agency and work as an intentional agent. Now, this concept does make me think about ideas of, say, slumbering gods, dead gods, and mindless gods, at least in fiction, such as, you know, Lovecraft's Azazoth comes to mind.
0: Uh, oh, you you got me on Azazoth recently, but I looked yeah. it up.
1: It's Azathoth. Azathoth. I'm oh, sorry that, to correct you. Oh, that, that would be, yeah, it would have the Egyptian Thoth uh, uh, aspect to it. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, as as Azathoth or Azazoth, he doesn't care because he he's mindless. <laughs> he doesn't even know his own name. He's just swirling chaos at the middle of the universe, gnawing on himself himself. while, uh, you know, blind monsters play flutes. Uh, But like this would be an example of, first of all, it's a god that nobody actually worships. It is a fictional deity. But it is at least the concept of a deity that is mindless. Yes. Now,
0: I think this is another reason that uh, like the Crunchwrap Supreme could not be a viable god. Right. Right.
1: Because it's essentially uh, Azathoth, the the, the mindless uh, being at the center of of the chaotic universe.
0: Exactly. It's an inanimate object that symbolizes Primordial chaos. Yeah. Can't talk, has no uh, intentions, isn't going to do much. Right. All right. We're going to jump in here and take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own.
2: In the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: And we're back. All right, so let's move on to the third uh, uh, requirement. Gods must possess strategic information. So, in other words, the gods or God must have some ideas, some advice, or some secret knowledge that can improve your life here on earth. Perhaps it's a set of laws, a revelation that there are no laws, or knowledge about the coming end times, or the God must have privileged knowledge. He knows what you've done, or the nature of your inner thoughts, or what will happen to you in the future.
0: Yes. Now, I think it's very important to note that this does not mean the same thing as, like, omniscience, Mm -hmm. which would be a omniscience  – all-knowingness would be a form of strategic information. It would be like the ultimate form of strategic information. Uh, But uh, omniscience is a property only some gods possess, right? The strategic information idea here just requires that a god knows something valuable or relevant. Uh, For example, the version of god depicted in the Garden of Eden story does not appear to be all-knowing. Like, he walks in the garden, he has limited perspective, it is possible to at least temporarily hide from him, and yet he clearly has access to important information that Adam and Eve do not have.
1: Right. Though I also always wondered if he was just kind of like, a, a, a you know, sky daddy, a playing dumb, uh, but sort of trying to see what his creations are going to say. Hmm. You know, like when you walk and you're like... All right, who smeared their food on this window? You know who smeared <laughs> the food on the window, but you're you're asking the question because you want to have a, a civilized discussion about it, and 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 uh, and, and you know, in in, in doing so, uh, you know, prevent more food smearage from happening. Sure. Well, I think that's a valid interpretation too. I think the other one's more straightforward, but it could be either one.
0: Um. Uh, so Barrett points out that it's important that this information is relevant to humans in particular, right? Yeah. Quote, suppose a certain minimally counterintuitive agent only knows about Himalayan microinvertebrates. <laughs> Such a being is unlikely to gain traction as a noteworthy entity and rise to the status of a God. Uh, you know, and that's specifically because it – this entity does not have any information that is useful in any way relevant to humans. Like they, and, and they don't have to be helpful, right? Gods can be mean. Gods can be bad. Beings with strategic information could be helpful allies or dangerous enemies, as, say, some of the Greek gods often are. Like
1: Poseidon, you know, yeah. he, he wants to wreck your ship and get revenge on you. He's still a god. All right. Next, we have number four. This is a big one. Gods must be able to act in the human world in detectable ways. Barrett says, quote, an all-seeing, all-knowing statue that does nothing but sees and knows is not worth transmitting. Gods have to do stuff and be known by that stuff or at least to have done something. Otherwise, it's just not a concept that's going to travel.
0: Sure. Or to be likely to potentially do something in the future. Right. Yeah. A god that has no interaction whatsoever with the world usually isn't going to form a religion. People aren't going to – have beliefs about that kind right. of thing. Like, like,
1: for instance, think about um, UFO religions, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to involve ideas of say, well, okay, the, the aliens came in an ancient time, or the aliens are speaking to us now, or the aliens will come and save our our you know dying culture. But if your, your UFO religion says the aliens are out there, they've never come, uh, they've never communicated with us, and they never will come, Uh, But we worship them as a god. That doesn't make any sense. Why am I – what am I getting out of this relationship? Yeah. Now, again, this is
0: one where – I would say that none of these rules are things where you can think of no possible exceptions Mm because like – I can think about – I guess like in the Gnostic religions, there are some types of God that are like very, very removed. You could still say that their actions have some like downstream effects or like very important downstream effects on the world. But there are like some types of gods or godlike type concepts that are at a, at least a very distant remove from the right. goings on of the world, but often in those cases, there are like sort of layers below them
1: who do interact more directly, right? Or in some cases, they're more esoteric variations of a god that is worshipped more popularly in a slightly different form. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to five gods. Must be capable of motivating behaviors that reinforce belief. Yes. Uh, behaviors such as ritual and prayer, uh, and they need uh, to be reinforcing behaviors. For, in, for instance, uh, Barrett makes the example uh, that the ritual can't promise to produce eight-foot children because there will be no eight-foot children around then to reinforce this. Um, now, rituals that promise happiness, um, contentment, even financial gain, these at least you can make an argue that, look, here's the proof of the ritual working.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, and it doesn't have to be clear proof. I mean, as long as there could be some kind of ambiguous way of interpreting that the rituals are having an effect, right? Uh, th- then I think that's still okay. But yeah, he, he's saying that like the ritual can't guarantee
1: results that it won't actually deliver. Right. If you say, if you tithe at 80% to my new religion, you will live forever like that's that's going to bite you in the butt eventually and mm. then your religion's going to fall apart
0: but it is funny how far out on the limb you can kind of get with this like as long as there's some kind of ambiguity where you're not really sure or maybe you don't see it not working for other people or something right uh, like, there, you know, there, the prosperity gospel is incredibly popular, but I think that there's enough ambiguity that you don't necessarily know what's going on with everybody else who's trying it. There's enough wiggle room to say, like, you're not quite doing it right. right. Uh, it inspires a, a
1: certain level of dishonesty among the people that are practicing it. Mm-hmm. And then at the center of it, you generally have an individual that's perpetrating a con job. Mm-hmm. Like, it is about the appearance of wealth, and then, of course, they're they're, uh, you know, in most of these cases, they are they're they're leeching money, right? They are they are financially benefiting from the scenario, uh-huh. and then you, it's not like you have to carry this out forever, you know. It's, a, you know, con games have a beginning and an end usually, right?
0: Yeah, but then of course there are again, even if you're only understanding religion in a totally naturalistic way. There are all kinds of benefits that religious rituals can deliver. They can deliver like maybe, uh, you know, strong, tightly bonded communities with people who help mm-hmm. each other. They can deliver uh, a sense of happiness and contentment. All, all kinds of like psychological and social benefits could be perfectly naturalistic outcomes of religious beliefs and practices. Right.
1: So even, if, you know, uh, say, you know, Prosperity Gospel Church, uh, which is – is, is, you know, vilified to a large extent and for, in many cases, for good reason, you could still have that kind of a church community Mm -hmm. that would have a a lot of benefits to the members of that community. Uh, Likewise, you could have, uh, you know, something positive and beneficial sort of emerge out of a more restrictive uh, totalitarian uh, belief system. Like maybe there's some concept within that religion that resonates and works and then the, the individual's, Practicing it, run off, and you know, start something new with that that concept that actually works for them. Arguably, an example of this uh, I've I've heard is uh, you know in Scientology, there huh. are members of Scientology uh, or, or former members of Scientology who have claimed that you know they they don't care for the organization or some of the culture there, perhaps, but they like the rituals, they like some of the the technological um, uh, ideas and uh, some of the practices that are utilized. They see value in. Them uh, and they attempt to spin them off into uh, something separate from them, the the central church of Scientology. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, especially the lower levels of Scientology are. are almost in some ways indistinguishable from like a self-help program that's basically designed to like give you confidence and motivation to take steps to achieve your goals and that kind of thing. And, you know, with with stuff like that, you can certainly see how just uh, having a program that's supportive and telling you to move confidently towards the things you want – could be perceived as very helpful. Could actually be very helpful in producing motivation for that kind of behavior, even if it also implies things about you know like bombs from space and aliens in you and ghosts and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean as long as all that stuff's minimally uh, counterintuitive. I mean, because that's the <laughs> that thing. That does seem maximally
0: counterintuitive, but
1: I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I I don't know. I. Sometimes, at least, I, I see people criticize. You see this the thing with with any religion. Uh-huh. Someone is liable in one religion; they're liable to criticize the other by saying, "That's crazy, right? That's wonky. How can you believe in that?" And, uh, and without actually looking at the the details of their own belief system, sure and. Um, uh, yeah, I mean that's just that's just part of it. But
0: well, yeah, it's what you've come to accept as normal. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing actually about uh, that's come up in in the theory about being counterintuitive. You know, religions needing counterintuitive elements is that uh, like as you get used to a religion, the elements that used to be counterintuitive become less counter. They become intuitive. Ah,
1: and then you need the next spin on it, right? Yes, you need the mashup. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody, we're going to have to uh, go ahead and break right here. This one went long. Yeah, this one went a a little bit long, so we're going to have to bust it into two episodes. Uh, Certainly, there's going to be more Santa in the second half than in the first half. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That'll send you where you need to go. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, That really helps us out.
2: Huge
0: thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at StuffToBlowYourMind.com.
2: work.